right, well, good morning. Good morning, welcome back to Sunday School. We are continuing again in our Fundamentals of the Faith series. We are exploring 13 of the Bible's most foundational truths for right belief and right practice. Now, last week we began looking at the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we saw quite clearly from all over the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is an independent person from, or he's separate from the Father and the Son. And yet we also saw that he is the one true God. The fullness of deity dwells in the Spirit. These apparently contradictory truths that he's a separate person from the Father and Son, and yet he is the one true God, it can only be explained, as we saw, via the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity, that God is, that there, there is only one God, and that God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just a reminder of the application of that, the Holy Spirit deserves our full honor and worship. He is no less God than the Father or the Son, nor is he a mere force sent by the Father or Son. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he is pleased by our obedience, and he is grieved by our disobedience. So if we say that we love God, we must love and obey God's Holy Spirit. Now we've completed our discussion of the Holy Spirit's person, but what about his ministry? What does he do? That's what we're going to look at today. So before we go on, let's pray. Great God, we love to study your truth. It, it really is the instruction that we need. It grounds us. It helps us understand how we look at the world and how we look at the Christian life. So God, as we look more at the work of the Spirit today, I pray that it would clarify the things that we don't understand or that we wrongly believe and bring us into right beliefs so that our practice then can conform to that. Help me to explain this well and accurately. And I pray, God, that we would be more reverent of the Spirit and more reliant on the Spirit, more walking in step with the Spirit as a result of what we talk about today. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like your Christian life lacks something? It lacks oomph. It lacks pizzazz. It lacks energy. It lacks life. You've come to understand and believe in the incredible gospel of Jesus. You are a Christian. But your life seems to lack the power and excitement that should go along with those impressive gospel realities. If God is my God, and if I am in Christ, and if I now have God's spirit, why does life seem so ordinary? And worse, why do I struggle so much with sin? Why am I prone to fear and anxiety? Why do I easily slip into lust and anger? Why do I frequently feel hopeless, joyless? Why don't I see the glory of God in some obvious, regular, and spectacular way in my life? In such a state, you may look curiously or even longingly at some of our charismatic brethren who claim to hear from and talk to God audibly on a regular basis. They testify of regular miracles from God. They act boldly in accordance to what they claim is the discernible promptings of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, let me to do this, let me to do this, let me to talk to that person. 
They may even assert that the reason that Christians like you are so lacking in spiritual strength and light is because you never received the second baptism or the second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Oh, poor Christian, you need to pray. You need to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not only then will you see victory over sin and hopelessness in your life, but you will also speak in tongues. You will hear from God. You will see God's miracles spectacularly. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard about this in other sectors of what's called Christianity today. But you know the Bible, or at least you think you do. And you don't believe that the charismatic, Pentecostal, that type of position on the Spirit's ministry is accurate. Yet, why do some of their spiritual lives seem so vibrant compared to your own? Does an accurate understanding of the Spirit's work, according to the Bible, really yield a dull, struggling, joyless life of following Christ? Or is there indeed something that you as a Christian might be lacking from the Spirit that you need to seek, you need to pray for, before you can really unlock the blessings and victory of the Christian life? Well, such questions are why we need to go over the fundamentals of our faith, even what is the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because God's Spirit is not so impotent as to leave you in a dull and defeated walk as a Christian. But neither does the Spirit work in a regular, showy, and spectacular way as asserted by some. Now, we're going to have a whole lesson later on the spiritual gifts, even the miraculous gifts. I'm not going to get into that topic today, but we do want to talk generally about the Spirit's work, both what He has done and what He's doing, so that we can rightly respond to and cooperate with God's Holy Spirit. If you haven't already, take your Fundamentals of the Faith workbook and turn to Lesson 7. Lesson 7, and we're picking up at Roman numeral 3, the work of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have a workbook, just see Dwayne in the back. One of the greeters, they can hook you up. Just a $5 requested donation. Remember, we use the workbooks a lot in class, so you want to make sure you have it and you bring it. Also, do the homework in advance. Now, in the mysterious wisdom of God, in the profound order of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit does a lot. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work. And if you look at what's under Roman numeral three, there are three main categories of the Spirit's ministry, according to the Bible, that we can identify. Uh, these aren't the only ones, but they're the first three that we're going to identify. These are major ministries, major works of the Holy Spirit. You see it under letter A, letter B, and then in the table that follows letter B. So let's see what these three are. If you look at letter A, if you did the homework, you've already filled in the answer. Psalm 104, verses 29 to 30. I'll give you verse 29 as well. It says Psalm 104, 30. But Psalm 104, verses 29 to 30 says, speaking about God, you hide your face, they, that is living creatures, are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to the dust, or return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. All right, think, keep in the back of your mind what work of the spirit is that pointing to, but let's add a couple other verses. 
Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1 to 2. Listen to this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then we'll add one more verse. Luke 1.35. Luke 1.35. Gabriel speaks to Mary and he says, or the verse says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now just a question about that last verse. What is Gabriel explaining to Mary in Luke 1.35? He says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Danny? Okay, yeah, he's definitely talking about the Holy Spirit, but she just had a question that he says, oh, the Holy Spirit's the explanation for what's about to happen. What was her question and what's the explanation? Say that again, Danny. Yeah, how will what come about? That's right. She just said, I've never known a man. He just told me I'm going to have a son and he's going to be the Messiah. How can that be? And he says, the Holy Spirit is going to conceive this life in you. The Holy Spirit's going to put this, the power of the Holy Spirit's going to put this child inside your womb. So from these three verses, we can definitely see the Holy Spirit is definitely active in what? Say that, Eric. Creation. Creation. In the giving of life, the Holy Spirit is the creator. Now, wait a second. Maybe that statement just caught you off guard. I thought the Father was the creator. I mean, doesn't Acts 17, 24 say that? Well, then again, maybe it was the Son. I mean, John 1, 3 says that all things were created through him, the Word. How do we reconcile the Bible saying that different persons in the Godhead are the creator? That's right, they're one God. This goes back to the doctrine of the Trinity. This is what we talked about last week. God is Trinity. Whatever God does, he does together. Each person played a role, plays a role in whatever God does, and that was true of creation as well. The Father commanded creation. The Son executed it, and the Spirit did something. It says he was hovering over the waters in the beginning. He presided. He was the one who gave life in some way. He was an important means. He did that in the beginning, and he's still doing that. When any child is born today, that is the Spirit giving life. So one main category of the Spirit's work is certainly creation. Now look at letter B. We see another category. This is based on 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21. I'll read those verses to you. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, according to these verses, the Holy Spirit is also involved in what? Prophecy. He is the spirit of prophecy. He's where prophecy comes from, but we can also say something else. What else is he involved in? That's right. The inspiration of the scripture, the creation of the scripture, that comes from the spirit. And this is another main work. And then we... I won't go more into this one, though, because we've already talked about it in our first couple of lessons where we're talking about the Bible. We talked about how the Spirit was involved in that, how this is coming from the Spirit. And this is even why we call the Bible God-breathed and the sword of the Spirit. 
the Spirit is the one who wrote the Bible through the human authors. And if anybody prophesied as recorded in the Bible or, or not in ancient times, that was from the Spirit. Now look at the table underneath B. So we've seen two main categories of the Spirit's work. There's a third one here. We're given the answer straight away, and that is the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ. The Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ. And we've got three verses to illustrate this, and let me get three readers for these verses. We've got John 15, 26, John 16, 13, and John 16, 14. So who can do the first one? Get these assigned right away. Mark, would you be able to do that? Who can read John 16, 13? Danny, can you do that? And then John 16, 14? Yeah, Eric, you can do that. So we'll go in that order. I know 14 appears first there, but let's start with John 15, 26. Go ahead, Mark, when you're ready. Oh, you can read verse 27 also. Very good. So notice what Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking in John 15. What he says the Spirit's role will be. It will be to testify about Jesus, bear witness of Jesus. Fundamentally, the Spirit attests that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is who he says he is. Let's go John 16, 13. Danny, I think you've got that one. This is very interesting. Now, Jesus says here, the Spirit will guide you. Now, who's the you? Yeah, disciples, the original disciples. And there is a, there's an extension of that to, in, in some ways, to uh, the whole church. But particularly the original disciples, he says the Spirit's going to guide you. It's going to guide you into all truth, even what is to come. But from where does the Spirit get this truth? The verse we're about to read, verse 14, will clarify. But here we see the negative asserted for us. From where does the Spirit not speak? Himself. He does not speak of himself. He does not speak on his own initiative. He does not seek to speak or pass on his own word. So whose word does the Spirit speak? Now we learn in verse 14. So Eric, go ahead and read that. Right. Whose word does the Spirit speak? The words of Jesus, the truth of the Son. It's the Son's word that the Spirit is intent on proclaiming. The, the Holy Spirit is intent on disclosing or revealing Jesus Christ. And in so doing, what greater goal will the Spirit accomplish, according to John 16, 14? He will glorify the Son. Jesus says, he will glorify me for, we know that's true because he's going to take what's mine and disclose it to you. He's going to give me, he's going to give you my word and therefore the Holy Spirit will glorify me. You know, I suspect one reason that we may be tempted to downplay or to forget about the Holy Spirit is that according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit is not worried about drawing attention to or glorifying himself. The Holy Spirit is determined to show us and to glorify the Son. And interestingly, the Son is determined to show us and glorify the Father. And we also learned before from John 5, the Father wants to see the Son glorified. What about the Holy Spirit, though? Is he left out in this whole arrangement? 
Well, it's not as if the Holy Spirit is just the third wheel that the, God, the Godhead doesn't really care about. You remember what Jesus said about blaspheming him versus blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, whatever men may say against me, they'll be forgiven them. But if they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what does he say? They will never be forgiven. Or think about first, oh, that's Luke 12, 10, by the way. Or if you can think about 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, if anyone seeks to harm or destroy the dwelling place of God's spirit, which in that context is the church, what does God promise will happen to that person? If you seek to destroy the dwelling place of God's spirit, what will God do to you? He will destroy you. I think even from just those two verses, we can understand that just as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, so both Father and the Son love the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. They are zealous for each other. So let's not ever think that we can dishonor the Holy Spirit and get away with it. No, the Holy Spirit is just as much worthy of honor and glory as the other persons of the Godhead. Nevertheless, we can see that a third main work of the Spirit is to disclose and bring honor to the Son, bear witness of Christ. Now, each of these three main works of the Spirit that we've just looked at are important. But probably the most discussed area of the Spirit's ministry in the Bible is the Spirit's work in salvation. And that's what we're going to look at next under Roman numeral 4 in your workbooks, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Letter A has us looking at John 16, verses 7 to 8. So as we seek to fill in that blank, let's recall those verses. John 16, verses 7 to 8, I'll read this to you. But I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now we should understand the term Helper here, even as we read from um, John 15, where Helper or Advocate is used. This is another reference to the Spirit. So according to these two verses, John 16, 7 to 8, what work of salvation, what work in salvation is the special work of the Spirit? I think I heard somebody say it. Conviction of sin. It says the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, when you give the gospel, and we sought to do that recently at the mall these last two days, we cannot, we could not, bring people to conviction on our own. We can proclaim the truth, but that doesn't mean they're going to be convicted. That has to be the Spirit's work. He must convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's what he does for those that God has chosen. Question B gives us another work of the Spirit in salvation. This comes from John 3, 5 to 8. John 3, 5 to 8. I'll read. But Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again, or born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, this should be a somewhat straightforward question then. By whom are sinners born into God's kingdom? 
the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gives new birth, who gives new life, new spiritual life, who regenerates. There is no working or willing your way into God's kingdom. This is the thing we always have to tell people at the mall, usually talking to um, people of Catholic background. At least that's, the, that's what I'm always talking to. And they think they can work their way or will their way into God's kingdom. But that's not how it works. You must be begotten from above. You must have new life given to you by the Holy Spirit. And notice that this is actually just like the Son, as proclaimed in John 1. The Son is the creator who's able to give both physical life and spiritual life. And the Spirit is the same. The Spirit gives physical life, as we've already seen. And yet it is the special role of the Spirit in salvation to give spiritual life, spiritual begottenness, to sinners, to saved sinners. The Spirit's the one that gives new birth and regeneration. The first part of letter C actually repeats that concept with something slightly new. Look at letter C with Titus 3, 5 to 6. Titus 3, 5 to 6, this is part of what, does, what work does the Spirit do when a person is saved? Titus 3, 5 to 6. It says, He, that's God, saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you can note some similarity in the verses in Titus to what we just read in John 3. What work does the Spirit do when a person is saved? Right, so we see regeneration and renewing, but then there's another concept attached to that. Regeneration, renewing, with, Paul's it washing there. What's washing? Is he literally putting us in water? Yeah, it's cleansing. Remember what we heard in John 3? Speaking of, uh, was it in the verses that we just read? Let me just double check. But it certainly is elsewhere in John 3. Oh, yes, in John 3, 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And then there's a big question of, well, what does he mean, born of water? Is that baptism? No, it's not baptism. What is he talking about? He's talking about cleansing. That actually, that concept was already proclaimed in the Old Testament. Your heart must be cleansed as well as given life. And that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit not only regenerates you, but it provides fundamental cleansing. When you're saved, your heart is cleansed. It's made new. That's what the Spirit does. He cleanses and makes us alive in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the other, verses, other verse under C, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. What else does the Spirit do when a person is saved? Actually, I'll give you verse 12 for context here. You know what? This is one I want you to turn to. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. read that. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, 
And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 is a chapter talking about the diversity of spiritual gifts that exist in the church. But notice how verse 12 of chapter 12, in this verse, Paul stresses the fundamental unity, the essential oneness of the church. How the church should appreciate unity within diversity. They are, the church is, one body in Christ. But why? Why is the church one body in Christ? Paul explains the reason in verse 13. Notice verse 13 starts with the word for. So he's explaining. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What body does Paul mean in verse 13? The body of believers, the church, because the church is the what of Christ? Is the body. The church is the body of Christ. So we could say it this way, or actually I'll ask you this question. What work does the Spirit do when a person is saved? He spiritually baptizes that person into Christ. And into the body of Christ. That is to say, the Spirit brings into fundamental union, fundamental oneness, the believer with Jesus, with the Son, and with all those who are in the Son. With all his brothers and sisters in the true church. The Spirit baptizes a new believer into Christ and into Christ's body. But does this really happen at salvation? Notice verse 13 again. Not only does Paul describe the work of the Spirit as a past work for believers, he says we were all baptized, but then notice we were all baptized. No matter our background, he even just says right afterwards, Jew, Greek, slave, free, we were all baptized into Christ. And then there's the repetition at the end of the verse. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul stresses, this is the reality for all believers. All have been baptized into Christ. All have been made to drink of the one spirit. And of course, this must be the case if the church is ever to be unified. How will Christians find oneness or unity without this? Because let's face it, we're all different. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different giftings. And if most are baptized by the Spirit into Christ, but not everyone. Well, the have-nots will never be united with the haves. They're fundamentally different. Unity is sunk. But Paul says, no, we can have our unity and diversity because, and we can serve as one church, as one in the church, because all have already been baptized into Christ, and all have already drunk of the one Spirit. And what's an important implication from these verses? Hang on, I see some hands. I'll come to you in just a second. You see the note in your notebooks. The baptism of the Spirit occurs only once at the time of salvation. If you're a Christian looking for spirit baptism to jumpstart your spiritual life, you are barking up the wrong tree. 
Paul says, the Bible says, you already have the spirit baptism. The spirit baptized you into Christ once and for all when you were saved. You don't need to look for that now. And this isn't the only verse that says that. I won't read these to you, but you can jot these down if you want to look at it later. Romans 6, 4 talks about our being baptized into Christ. Galatians 3.27 talks about us being baptized into Christ. Colossians 2.12 talks about us being baptized into Christ. Always in the past tense. This is the reality for all believers. The Spirit, if you believe in Christ this morning, the Spirit has already immersed you in Christ. You are now one with Christ, and you are one with his people in the church. Now I saw some hands. Danny, was there something you wanted to say or ask? Yes. We're going to say more about that in just a second. But we have these verses in the epistles talking about how the Spirit baptizes us into Christ. But interestingly, a number of the Gospels say that Christ baptizes us with the Spirit. Dwayne, what were you going to say? Okay, yes. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But get this right here. The Spirit baptizes us into Christ. Now, there's one more work of the Spirit that we'll identify right now as what the Spirit accomplishes in salvation, and that's in question D. And this time, this has to do with Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, and I'd like you to turn over to there as well. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. So at the beginning of Ephesians, first part of the chapter is talking about everything that believers have in Christ, even Gentile believers, because the Ephesians, they were primarily a Gentile church. And then this is what we hear in verses 13 to 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. All right, according to the context of this, these two verses, who is the him that starts the beginning of verse 13? In Christ, that's right. A lot of the times you see in him or in whom, it's Jesus. It's the Son. How do all the salvation blessings come to us? It's through the Son. It's in Him. By Christ, by union with Christ, verses 13 and 14 here in Ephesians tell us that God does something for us. And what is it that God does? He guarantees our salvation. How? By sealing us with the Spirit. By sealing us of the Holy Spirit, or we could state it this way, the Holy Spirit seals us. If we're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and salvation, the Holy Spirit seals us. And by the way, Paul says the same thing in Colossians, or 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. I'll just read this one to you. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now he who, establishes with, he who establishes us with you in Christ, there it is again, and anointed us is God, who also sealed us, and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. There you got it again. Sealed pledge. Sealed guaranteed. Now what is a seal? Well, you see a little handy explainer in your workbooks right after question D. 
but I'll say a little bit more. In ancient times, a seal could be something that you put on an object to prevent someone from opening that object. So it's kind of like we have today, right? You buy a thing of strawberry jam and it's sealed because you want to make sure that it's not contaminated. They might, in ancient times, have sealed a letter with a wax seal to close the letter, make sure it's not opened in an unauthorized way. Or even when the Bible speaks about Jesus' tomb being sealed, that likely included making the entrance stone immovable. But there's another meaning of seal, and that other meaning is the one that fits better in this context, in the two verses in Ephesians and even that in 2 Corinthians. Another way that a seal, you could seal something or that a seal could be used was as a mark of authenticity or identification. Today, if you need to get an official document of some kind, usually from the government, an important part of that document is a seal. There needs to be a physical mark on the document from the government that shows that, it has, that this document is authorized. It, this seal marks the document as authentic, true, valid. And the same thing happened in ancient times. A seal on a letter, it not only would close the letter, but it would mark that letter as authentically coming from a certain person, belonging to that person. Maybe that person would even take a seal that he had on his ring, or maybe he had a little cylinder that he would just use. But he could take the ring and... Uh, that hot wax, he presses the ring into it, and now the mark of identification is on it. This is authentically a letter from whomever sent it. Seal was used as a mark of authenticity. Now the Bible says Christians have been sealed. Christians have been marked as authentic and belonging to God. How? By the Holy Spirit. And I say, okay, that's a nice metaphor, but what does that mean? What did the Spirit do or what did God do that counted as a seal, a mark of authenticity, of belonging to God? Well, what's the answer? Jody? Well, talk a more about the idea of guaranteed in just a second. But in what sense does the Spirit function as a seal for us? What actually happened? Eric? That's right. God gave us the Spirit. And now the Spirit belongs to us and even dwells inside us. Did you notice that actually in the verses that we read? It doesn't just say that God sealed us and God guaranteed us. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. The Spirit is given as a pledge. 2 Corinthians also used the, the word give. What this is describing is the profound mystery of indwelling. The Holy Spirit comes inside a believer and permanently indwells that believer as a gift from God, as a mark of authenticity, of belonging to God. And this is why the Bible can speak of the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3. And even individual believers in their bodies, their physical bodies, as being temples of the Holy Spirit, temples of God, 1 Corinthians 6. God set his seal on what belonged to him by giving them the Holy Spirit. The Spirit seals us. Which means the Spirit functions as something else which is something else we read in both Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 and 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. 
That is, the Spirit is a pledge, or some translations say a guarantee. Now, when you hear pledge, don't think mere promise. It does say promise in Ephesians, but not mere promise. You know, when we think of pledge, probably the, the first context that I can think of is the Pledge of Allegiance, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. What you're saying is, I promise to honor the flag. I promise to honor and stand up for my country. But how many people say that, and they don't really mean it. They don't really care. They do things that dishonor their country or dishonor the flag. A mere promise can be easily falsified because there's no substance. There's nothing to show that the promise is real beyond those words. That's not the idea of pledge here. Actually, What's translated pledge, in a more literal sense, has the meaning of deposit, down payment, first installment of a fuller payment to come. This is a financial term. It's like someone is saying, with this term, translated pledge, I promise to give you the rest, and you know that I'm sincere because here's the first payment up front. That's a definitely a more substantive promise, more, more substantive promise. And God says his spirit is such a promise and pledge to us. Now, help me tease out the implication here. How is the spirit a promise and pledge to us, even like a down payment? Jody, you were actually saying something like this before. Exactly. Is the promise of the eternal inheritance coming to us in full? Because have we received salvation in full? In one sense, yes. In one sense, no. We have the eternal life of God. We have Christ. So in one sense, we have everything. And yet in another sense, it's not fully realized. We haven't been brought into God's kingdom. We aren't ruling and reigning with him. We don't have resurrection bodies. We're not dwelling with the Lord forever. And you might say, well, how do I know I'm going to get that? God says it's guaranteed. My spirit is the guarantee. He's the down payment. You see, God is not a God of takebacks. God is not a God who says to us, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, and at the last minute, I'm just kidding, you're condemned. No, everyone saved in Jesus Christ is sealed by the spirit, who is the personal pledge that the rest of Christ's salvation inheritance is ours and will be ours. It's guaranteed. To quote the statement in your workbook, the last part under D. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is God's promise of our inheritance in the future. What a wonderful assurance. I think I saw a hand. Jody. Yeah, yeah, that's a good observation, Jody. Just this one verse already throws into confusion the position that you can lose your salvation. 
because the spirit is the guarantee, the down payment, how's God going to just pull that back? That's the opposite of what a down payment does. That's an opposite of what it represents. And you say, well, what about the Christians who fall away? Well, the Bible already has an explanation for that. They, they went out from us because they were never of us. It's not that, oh, they were saved and then they lost their salvation. God's spirit contradicts that idea. When God gives salvation, when Christ becomes the savior of a person, that person can never be separated from Christ. And that doesn't mean we become complacent and we just live sinfully, but it does mean we can rest securely. Jesus is not going to lose us. The Father is not going to lose us. The Spirit is not going to lose us. The Spirit actually, as the song says that we sometimes sing, the Spirit guarantees our hope until redemption's done. Notice again, though, just to add another thought, when these wonderful actions of the Spirit occur. Verse 13 of Ephesians, once again, in him, last part of the verse, you were sealed. Past tense. Actually, 2 Corinthians one twenty two is also given in the past tense. So this is an, a reality that's already happened for Christians, and we can even be more specific. What happened so that we Christians would be given the Spirit in this way? Sealed. Guaranteed. We listened, not just listened, and believed. Notice, it's right there in verse 13. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. In other words, you were sealed with the Spirit when you believed and were saved. That's when it happened. This wasn't something that just happened sometime after you were saved. This happened when you were saved. It's right here in the text. So how many true Christians then, how many true Christians have the indwelling and sealing spirit? 100%, all of them. There is no Christian who does not have the spirit. There is no Christian who is not sealed with the spirit. No Christian needs to pray to receive the spirit because he already has it. But here's where someone might say, hold the phone. There is another kind of receiving the Spirit that Christians can have and should have after salvation. A second baptism, a second receiving, a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. It goes by different terms, but all the same idea. And we can prove this from the Bible. As some of you brought up, what did John the Baptist and Jesus himself promise multiple times? John baptized with water, or John baptized in water. Jesus baptizes with or baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Jesus immerses his disciples, at least some of them, in God's Spirit. We see this in Matthew 3.11, John 1, 31-33, and most significantly in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. Acts 1, 4 and 5, let me read that to you. It says, Gathering them together, he, that's Jesus, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. So he's talking about his disciples. But to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Well, what happened not many days later? Even just 10 days later, according to Acts chapter 2. Well, let's read. Acts 2, 1 to 4. Yeah, why don't you go over there? Acts 2, 1 to 4. Acts 2, 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. What's happening? Well, the promise is being fulfilled. The promised baptism of the Spirit had come. And with spectacular, miraculous power. They're speaking in tongues. They've got tongues of fire hovering over them. They're filled with the Spirit. And notice, was this baptism for those who had already believed or who had just believed in that moment. They already believed. These were Jesus' disciples. They'd already believed in him. He said, wait, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And here it is. And later on in this passage, if you read down in Acts chapter 22, Peter preaches a sermon. The listeners believed. He promises they'll receive the Holy Spirit, but they don't have the same spectacular experience. So here's... So two things significantly in this passage. You have people who already believed, who are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then you have people who believe for the first time, and they don't have the same thing happen to them. Though they receive the Spirit. So clearly, clearly, there is a second baptism of the Holy Spirit that takes the life of someone who already believes in Jesus to another level, even with the miraculous ability to speak in tongues. Other miracles too, perhaps. And besides, doesn't the New Testament command Christians, those who already believe, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5.18. It says right here that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's why they were able to do these things. This is what the filling of the Spirit looks like. That's how the believers spoke in tongues. So this is what we should seek. And this is what we see, right? Charismatics would say, this is what we see happening in the church. Spirit Baptized believers are speaking in tongues. So yes, there's an initial baptism feeling, uh, sealing, filling of the Holy Spirit when a person believes, but then there's also this second baptism, this second blessing, which believers should seek for themselves. At first glance, such an argument for a second baptism of or by the Holy Spirit seems impressive. But there are some major problems with this argument. Major problems with the Bible interpretation on which this argument is based. Can anyone identify one of those main problems? Yeah, Dwayne. Okay, very good. So Dwayne is pointing us to certain things that are important. But just to bring his point more generally, Acts is a book of narrative describing a unique historical period. 
So conclusions you draw from what is normal in the Christian life, just from the book of Acts, may not be accurate. If you're interpreting something from narrative, it has to be in connection with didactic books, things that are more explicitly teaching, because they'll show you how to interpret the narratives, because it's possible that something unique is happening in the narrative that is not to be repeated. So that's one issue. Is there another problem? Yeah, Steve. Mm. Okay, so again, you're, you're going to the epistles to help understand the narrative, and the epistles, Corinthians included, tells us about tongues. Why God, first of all, uh, tongues and acts, distinguish the tongues of the Bible compared to the tongues that is commonly asserted in practice today, but also the purpose and the way those, those gifts are to be used is described in the epistles. So if we're going to make an interpretation about spirit baptism or the gift of tongues, we need to come from the epistles first, or we need to understand what we see in Acts in light of the epistles, or else we might get off track. Dwayne, something else. Right, so actually we're going to say more about that in just a second, but one thing that is very significant to point out is that the Holy Spirit had not been given to anybody who believed in Jesus before Acts chapter 2. So there's definitely something unique about this. I'd say there's at least three problems with this argument. It is an argument that's influenced by present-day experiences and the desire to justify them. The tongues supposedly practiced today are coloring people's interpretation of the Bible. Proponents confuse Holy Spirit filling with Holy Spirit baptism and indwelling. These are not the same, as we'll discuss later. But the biggest problem is that this argument is based primarily on a section of narrative rather than a didactic text. And the fundamental principle of good hermeneutics or Bible interpretation is that you must rely on the sections of the Bible that explicitly teach what you should do to inform you as to whether and in what way you should imitate what people do in the narratives. Because sometimes good people in narratives do bad things that should not be imitated. Or sometimes people in narratives take actions that were good for them, but that would not be good for us because those people in the narratives were facing unique circumstances. Now, I could present to you a long, detailed argument as to why the book of Acts does not, in fact, teach or support the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we don't have that kind of time this morning. If you want to find an argument like that, there are books that do present it. One of them is John MacArthur's and Dick Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine. In the section on the Holy Spirit, it talks all about spirit baptism in the book of Acts. But let me give you the bullet point version. Bullet point version of response. Why Acts doesn't support a second baptism or blessing of the Holy Spirit. Number one, this has already been pointed out by Duane. The believers of the book of Acts occupied a unique transition period of church history. One in which God's true believers went from not having the indwelling spirit to having it. This was a unique change brought about by Jesus' new covenant work. He talks about this in John 14 to 16. I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send the helper. This was a change only inaugurated a short time after Jesus ascended into heaven. It wasn't like he died on the cross and boom, here's the spirit. Or he rose from the dead and boom, here's the spirit. He says, you're going to have to wait. I'm going to leave. 
and the Spirit's going to come to you sometime after. Thus, not everything that happens with believers in the, with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts should be expected of the entire church age. This is a transition period, and we're hearing about it in a historical record. Number two, the spectacular version of the baptism of the Holy Spirit actually only happened a few times in the book of Acts. And in each instance where we have the spectacular baptism of the Holy Spirit recorded, there is an obvious purpose in that spectacular display. There is a signaling of different people's inclusion in the new covenant. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit very obviously came upon Jesus' Jewish disciples, signaling that Jews are included in the new covenant. That makes sense because that's exactly what the Old Testament promised. But in Acts chapter 8, the Spirit visibly came upon believing Samaritans, signaling Samaritan inclusion in the new covenant. They didn't have to become Jews first. They were already included when they believed in Jesus and the Spirit came upon them in a very obvious and visible way. In Acts chapter 10, the Spirit visibly came upon believing Gentiles, much to the shock of the Jewish believers. They hadn't been baptized, they hadn't been circumcised, they hadn't had any of those things, and yet the Holy Spirit came upon them, and those people in that particular first instance, they spoke in tongues. This was a signaling of Gentile inclusion in the New Covenant. And then in Acts 19, the Spirit visibly came upon disciples of John the Baptist, which is a curious last group to be featured, but for whatever reason, God did that. Perhaps that signals Old Testament saints' inclusion in the New Covenant. But these are the only times we see the visible version of spirit baptism, and yet they had a purpose. It was not to demonstrate what should be the regular experience of Christians in the church. This was not even a regular experience of believers in the book of Acts. And instead was to show once and for all that these groups, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, maybe even Old Testament believers, they are equal inheritors of all that God gives in salvation through Christ. All have received the same spirit in the same way, with the same power. Via these four representative groups. And this is just like we heard earlier from Paul. We can be wholly unified in the church because even within our diversity, we are fundamentally one. Fundamentally one in the spirit. And then finally, number three. If we consider what the explicitly didactic or directly teaching portions of the New Testament have to say, so we're talking about the epistles, what they have to say about spirit reception, that is receiving the spirit, spirit indwelling, spirit baptism, we see that these writings always speak of spirit reception as being a past event and a completed action or of something that happens immediately upon salvation, upon repentance and faith. Never do the apostles command, suggest, or pray that Christians should seek a further reception of God's Spirit because believers already have the Spirit in full. Brethren, if you believe in Jesus, as we've already seen, you already have the whole down payment of God. You've already been sealed, baptized, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are not missing out on any portion of Him. Now, are you, actually, are you actually using and appreciating what you already have? That's a separate question. But make no mistake, these epistles clarify for us that Acts is not teaching that you need or should seek a second baptism or blessing from the Holy Spirit. If you have more questions about that, come talk to me afterwards. So in terms of what the Spirit does in salvation, just to summarize what we've seen today, we see that the Spirit convicts 
The Spirit gives new birth. The Spirit cleanses. The Spirit baptizes. And the Spirit seals. The Spirit does this for all believers as part of their conversions. These are powerful acts not repeated in a person's life, but which nevertheless have profound, everlasting effects. When these things happen, their effects never end. But what does the Spirit do for a believer after that person is saved? Is it just one and done? You're converted? Okay, I'm going to go do something else now. Is that what the Spirit does? What does the Spirit do in believer sanctification? We've got a lot to say there, but we're going to have to save that topic for next time. And next time is going to be in a little bit. Um, by God's providence, by God's grace, the next two Sundays, we have kingdom workers visiting us, and they're going to be doing presentations during the Sunday school hour. So we will not be going through FOF during those weeks. But please come back for that. I'm sure you'll be encouraged, and you'll be encouraging to those workers. But in three weeks' time, we will come back and finish talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're pretty much out of time today, so I'm not going to try and take any questions as part of the lesson. But if you have them, come talk to me afterwards. Let me close us in prayer. What wonderful truth, God. You've given us your spirit. You are in us. You've baptized us. You've sealed us. You've fundamentally come to indwell us. You've made us alive, caused us to believe. How wonderful, how beautiful, how staggering. And your spirit's never going to leave. It is the guarantee of what more is to come. We are going to be there in your kingdom. We're going to dwell forever with our God, and we will be free from these, uh, from the corruption, from death, from sin, from pain, from grief. All that is guaranteed because the Spirit is ours, and it's present, and it is outworking in our lives. And yet, God, how easy it is for us to live as if we didn't have the Spirit to not even think about the Spirit, not rely on the Spirit, and just rely on the flesh. Or to lose hope and say, I can never do this because I don't have the power. Of course we don't have the power in ourselves, but you have given us power in the Spirit. The Spirit is our power for holy living, for joyful living, for courageous living. So God, I pray that we would believe that that we would actually believe what you've told us in your word, because your word is reliable. We have the Spirit, and we have the Spirit in full. We're not lacking in some way so that we can have a joyful, overcoming Christian life. No, you've given it all. We don't need a second baptism, a second blessing, but we need to actually appreciate and use the blessing we've already received. So I pray that everyone here, everyone who listens to this lesson, that you would do that for them, and that we would experience the joy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you, everyone.